Green Left Weekly Radio. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice, committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movements. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. Uh, well, that was unexpected. Hello, hello, and good morning. Welcome to Green Left Radio. You are listening to 3CR. Uh, this is Zane. Jacob's going to be with us in just a moment, and it is two minutes past seven. Um, I think it's important to begin, as we usually do, by acknowledging that 3CR is coming at you from the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, uh, sovereignty was never ceded, and yeah, we pay our respect to elders, past, present, and future. And this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. And this morning we have got some interviews coming up for you. We've got Tim Buchanan, one of the organisers of the Students of Sustainability Conference happening up in Newcastle. Uh, Tim, uh, we had him on a few weeks back, probably, hmm, it's probably about two months ago maybe, uh, when there was a big coal protest. A bunch of people got a massive sign and occupied one of the coal loaders up in Newcastle and spread out this huge banner over the coal stockpiles uh, saying something about Commonwealth Bank funds coal and the associated climate and local community destruction that comes with that industry. Uh, yeah, so... Tim's going to be talking to us about SOS, and then later we've got John Tully talking to us about the Rajava conference that's happening this uh, weekend, and yeah, that's all about the Kurdish struggle and how that's kind of emerged as part of the Arab Spring and as part of the uh, turmoil that's been uh, happening in, in Syria. So yeah, stick around, it's going to be some uh, interesting stuff. To, to talk about. Uh, yeah, welcome, Jacob. Yeah, good morning, um, listeners. Um, so, I guess um, for probably the most interesting news um, that has been happening in the past week or so... Oh, um, hello? Yeah. yeah, you're on. Yep. Um, ah, yeah. Yeah, I'm right. Yeah, great. All right, no problem. Um, yeah, so the most kind of interesting um, news that's probably been happening recently has been kind of these um, attacks on the Green Senator um, Lee Rhiannon um, by, and of course, um, as written here in um, Green Left Weekly um, on this article titled Why We Support um, Lee Rhiannon, um, the attack is not being led by the Murdoch Press in particular, but by the Greens Federal Parliamentary Caucus. Um, former Greens leader Bob Brown has also stepped in and repeated this demand that, you know, she stepped down. And, of course, um, one of the... Um, to give a bit of context, um, what, what happened was... It's a bit of a... Basically, 
Um, the Greens, I think, parliamentary were in the process of making, kind of like trying to negotiate with um, the Liberal government um, to um, around their school, um, Gonski 2.0 reforms. Um, but basically, um, the great, um, the Liberals dropped out of any, of, of negotiating with the Greens and start, and made a negotiate, started negotiating with the other crossbenchers instead. Um, and then Lee, where Lee, Lee Rhiannon is sort of blamed here is, um, they have particular, they had a particular problem with Lee Rhiannon, um, authorising a leaflet that was being distributed in New South Wales. Um, I think that was actually the product of a, of a Greens, of a Greens branch in New South Wales that were, that were, that was distributed to houses that basically calling on, um, calling on, you know, people to, to put the pressure on their local MP to oppose any of the Gonski 2.0 reforms because it would ensure that there would be public education cuts. Um, but. And, and senators, I think. Yeah, and senators as well. Senators, plural. Um, yeah, so, um, basically I think the argument, I think Lee Rhiannon's kind of been used as a scapegoat because basically they're using that as an excuse as the reason why, from my understanding, this is why the Liberals dropped out of making any kind of negotiations with the Greens on this whole Gonski, on the whole Gonski 2.0 kind of education reforms they were trying to get through. Hmm. Yeah, it's pretty ridiculous. I mean, what it seems like is that the Federal Greens party room were trying to negotiate a least worst deal whereby they sort of said, all right, either Turnbull is going to get together the crossbench and they're going to cut Gonski or we can help pass something that's not as bad, which I just think is a terrible strategy. That's, that's, that's exactly how the Democrats came undone helping Howard pass the GST years ago. And it's just, it's not the way to do crossbench politics. You're not mm. there to pass bad policy, mm. but make it not quite as bad as it would have been mm. if someone else passed it. It's not the role of progressive left-wing parties in the Senate. And Lee Rhiannon knows that. And, uh, yeah, I just think it's disgraceful, the attacks on Lee Rhiannon. And I first got involved in politics around 2003, 2004, when those big anti-Iraq war protests were happening. Um, I'm originally, I grew up in Newcastle, so I was involved in climate change protesting, anti-war, refugee, uh, different sort of campaigns there. And Lee Rhiannon is someone who I remember who was first in the New South Wales Parliament before she got into federal parliament. And she always took the time to come along to you know, little grassroots protests. She'd come up from Sydney, she'd take the time to come along and show her support, and she always had good, you know, left-wing politics. Um, and so I think Lee is someone who's got a, a long record of using her position in Parliament to do what, you know, what the, the like, what Green Left would see is that the... the the best way to use Parliament, which is as a bridge and as a platform for mm. social movements. Yeah, I think one of the more interesting things is basically there's there's kind of this conflict that's kind of happening in the Greens, and you know the Greens are actually kind of like decried as like a party of protests um, by some of the more conservative commentators, and I think actually 
there is this conservative kind of put, there is a conservative push in the Greens to, to be, you know, a more, uh, a respectable party of government that's, you know, willing to negotiate and willing to make deals. But, you know, the reality is, the Greens are only going to be effective if if they actually remain a party of protests because hmm. they should be principally against making any kind of deals with liberal government um with liberal government senators and they should be staunchly you know i mean um they should be any left wing government should um left wing you know party um should you know just be saying you know we're not we will not make any negotiations with Liberal because we don't we're not going to be bound to passing these sort of bad you know, policy which, bad which takes money away from public schools mm. and that's what they were trying to pass and that that's that's the key issue here and really all of the the sort of Richard Di Natale the supporters of this disciplinary action against Leary Annan none of them are defending their Gonski deal they're all saying oh it, it doesn't matter the main thing is that Lee was undermining her colleagues. And so, like, no, the politics are important. Mm. And the New South Wales Teachers Federation, Maury Mulherin, he's commented on social media, he's the president of the New South Wales Teachers Federation, that their position has been it is better to leave in place the existing Gonski arrangements between the federal government and the states rather than create any new deal which reduces the level of funding. Much better not to have any Gonski 2.0 and to leave what is there in place than to have some new deal which results in less money going to public schools. Mm. And on that basis, he has said, Lee Rhiannon is is a fighter for public education and is someone who we should support. Mm. And the the Di Natale group don't have any answer to that. They just yeah. say, oh, no, the main thing is she was undermining us. Yeah. Well, in the, in the, on the bright side, in the end, the Greens voted against... Um, against the education bill anyway. All the MPs and senators voted against it in, in the end to begin with. So hmm. um, that's... Um, but I think it's... it's And there has been... Um, what's recently now happened in light of this is um, the Parliamentary Caucus has voted to suspend Lee Rhiannon from the party room. Um, and I think the basis of... And then basically I think they're... They're doing it in, until until New South Wales Greens changes its system, or yes. Yeah. Um, but of course, New South Wales Greens is going to respond by by saying, "Well, we're not going to give any. We'll cut out the fed, the money that we give federal fed, to the federal Greens." So mm. it's, yeah, there's a bit of a kind of. They, uh, they may respond in that way. That remains to be seen. Yep. So it's definitely well, I, oh yeah, it hasn't, hasn't happened yet, but that's um, those are the kind of threats that are kind of happening from the New South Wales Greens. That because um, I think one of the more interesting things in um, that I've noticed is um, the New South Wales Greens seem to be pretty united in standing behind Lee Rhiannon mm. um, because they're you know even more because they you know they they easily. There is a right-wing faction in the New South Wales Greens, but you probably would have made um, they are also standing with Lee Rhiannon. There's there's a pretty united support for Lee Rhiannon in the New South Wales Greens. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see what happens next in this. I think it's a big mistake for for what the, what the Greens are doing to Lee Rhiannon. It's just nothing but bad PR for them, and you know there doesn't seem to be any. Any sort of benefit they could get out of this other than, you know, making their party look worse, especially since they're still the only, you know, left, uh, still the only 
they're still they're still better than la- the they're still to the left of the Labor Party, mm. but you know it's just it's just it's bad for you know the if the for the left if if they become more irrelevant as a result of these right wing manoeuvres. Mm. Yeah, I think it was uh, I was having a chat to you about this uh, last night just as we were you know discussing this morning's program, putting it together, and I thought it was interesting what you said. The, the big criticism of the Dean Natale group of the New South Wales branch of the Greens is that the membership of the New South Wales Greens bind their representatives in Parliament on how they should vote on policy. In other words, the rank and file, the membership of the New South Wales Greens, they control their senator or senators plural and, and, and how they conduct themselves and vote in the Parliament. Uh, now, no other branch of the Greens around Australia has that system in place. New South Wales is the only branch that does that, and Dean Natale and co. want New South Wales to get rid of that. Mm. And what the New South Wales branch conveners have said is, if we want to change it, we don't believe the members do want to change that system because it empowers and um, it, it puts the members in the driver's seat but if we do want to change that, there are processes to do that. Uh, and the federal party room kicking out Lee Rhiannon ain't the process for making those changes. Yes. Because it sounds like almost, it's almost like an attempt. It's not, it's not like proper, it's not, it's almost like, well, it's basically like bullying or blackmail to basically force the New South Wales Greens to do, to adopt, to make a change as opposed to going for a proper democratic process. Hmm. Yeah, but yeah, it was it was interesting. Um, if you could just uh, for listeners uh, tell us what you told me last night about the um, the Communist Party in France, uh, which is I mean, yeah. there's many precedents of this, but yeah. I, I really well, I think um, well, one of the things, um, yeah, what, what, just to, um, to explain to listeners, one of the things um, with the Greens is um, that all all their a lot of the power is centralised into their elected representatives. Um, you know, which is quite problematic when you don't, um, for a political party, when, you know, um, when, when all the power is centralized into their elective representatives as opposed to having a democratically elected leadership, um, it creates, you know, this bureaucracy. And, you know, the example of, say, you know, the French, you know, Communist Party, you know, who, you know, had a lot of elected representatives. And I think, yeah, um, as a result of having elected representatives and even, you know, the SWP in Britain uh, who didn't have elected representatives but had lots of full-time paid organisers because they had lots of money, um, when all the power is centralised into that, you know, core, it creates this kind of bureaucracy because basically or or everything is about, you know, maintaining, you know, those federal kind of elected positions of power. Um, as a, um, and, you know, I think probably the reason why the Greens um, don't have the kind of democratic system is because it is, it is almost like a desperate cling to maintaining those federal, federally elected positions because they are still a relatively small party. Um, and of course, there, there's probably this fear of, you know, giving too much, giving power to, you know, someone who is not even, um, elected representative. Um, so yeah, the same, yeah, with the French Communist Party, because they had won positions and seats, um, they became disconnected from getting involved in the social movements because all their whole strategy became focused on maintaining their, fed, um, their position, their elected positions at, at the best of everything else. 
Hmm. Yeah, it's... I mean, it's... Ironically enough, this this uh, parliamentarist distortion, it's counterproductive anyway. Mm. Because the way for the Greens to boost their number of seats is to follow the lead of Sanders and Corbyn and put forward a more clearly left-wing program. Mm. That's that's the precedent that's happening in the world at the moment. Yep. Stop mincing around, put forward clear left-wing politics, and that's where you're going to get traction. That's where you're going to boost your support. Mm. And uh, yeah, I think it's about time we get um, started on an interview. <laughs> ah, indeed. Uh, uh, what's happening on line four? Mean? <laughs> uh, there's someone on the phone who's been. On the, have, have you already rung Tim? No. Okay. Oh, it's one of those mysteries, I guess. Um, I might play a bit of a announcement, and yeah, we'll see if we can get Tim Buchanan up in Newcastle. Where you meant to be, a film benefit for 3CR Radiothon, put on by the Sewer Show crew. Singer Aidan Moffat and friends travel Scotland, drinking in the roots of all folk tunes, featuring older balladeer Sheila Stewart. Showing upstairs at 3CR at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, on Friday the 30th of June at 7pm sharp. Popcorn supplied. $10, $5 concession. All welcome. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to have to flee your own country, spend days or weeks in a leaky boat on dangerous rolling seas and then arrive in a new country where you are terrorised even more? Well, that's the life confronting millions of people in this world who have no choice but to seek asylum. All these people want is a fair go, but here in Australia, our government, in our name, treats these desperate people with cruelty and inhumanity. Here at 3CR, we aim to give these people a voice, a chance to speak out and let you know that they are just like us, people with hopes and aspirations, people who deserve to be treated as we would expect to be treated if we found ourselves in this position. Refugee Radio is the voice of refugees. 10am every Sunday at 3CR 855 on the AM dial. So say I'm not a worthless human being Cause no one needs a worthless human being My family need a worthwhile human being Alrighty, welcome back. You're listening to Green Left Radio. It's 22 minutes past seven. And on the line, we have got Tim Buchanan from the Newcastle Uni Students Association and one of the organisers of SOS. Welcome, Tim. Good morning. How you doing? Yeah, good. Yeah, I guess um, the first question I want to ask is, I guess, how the how are the conference preparations for SOS going? <laughs> yeah, good. I'm actually at the student union building now, uh, doing some printing, um, printing out some some programs and um, some info sheets for people as they start to arrive at about eight o'clock. Um, we've got whole teams of people ready to set up and put up marquees and help out. So oh, yeah. that's going to be the day. All right, so, yeah, now that the full conference uh, agenda is out, you know, and, um, what can you tell us about the conference agenda, you know, in terms of, like, the highlights of guest speakers? and? Um, I guess 
Uh, the highlights for me are going to be just hearing from um, elders from all across the country. I think the the second uh, plenary on day two, which is Sunday, the second of July. Um, we've got local um, Indigenous student reps um, who are leading the way here in Newcastle, um, fighting like against CSG mining on their country. Um, we've got people like Bubbly and Linda Witten and uh, Melissa Talbot and Alyssa Haynes who also do a lot of anti-recognised stuff talking about like sovereignty, um, the legal pathways um, to achieving that, uh, whether that's through international uh, pathways or you know more national ones. Um, so that's going to be interesting for me. And that sort of sets the tone for day two as well. Um, so there's basically, you know, uh, in that, you know, there's sort of like, uh, sovereignty basics, um, and then really looking at constitutional sort of law and how it interacts. Um, so, but I mean, apart from that, there's also just so much other stuff, um, like a lot of campaign skills, um, organizational modes and methods, whether that's digital, we've got a whole digital stream, um, talking about like, um, crypto privacy, but also how to use, uh, digital platforms to organise and um, get involved in activism. Yeah. Um, one of the more interesting things, because um, I've been going to SOS since, well, for the past three years. The um, first one I went to was in Adelaide back in 2015. Um, and, yeah. But something I've noticed about the agenda, um, especially for this year, is that it does seem to, although I think SOS has always had this element of it to it um, over the years. Um, but it does seem to be, you know, looking at the workshop agenda there, he's over like five to six different workshops on, you know, um, that are anti-capitalist in nature, um, that are all about um, um, about capitalism. And he's wondering what you can comment on this whole idea of, you know, SOS being generally an anti, being conceptualised as an anti-capitalist conference. Um, well, I mean, over the years, I think it's moved away, even though back um, maybe 10 years ago there was still some of this sort of stuff, but I think we realise now that, you know, systems change is needed to achieve um, sustainability, to achieve um, equality, to achieve all the things that um, people are generally, generally fighting for. Um, I mean, if you want um, to help and not have people in offshore detention centres, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a result of, of capitalism and how it works. So um, we try to have a, a intersectional space, um, and you know we can always get better at that. But that's why it's gone down that road. You know, it's not like it's not a whole five days talking about banning plastic bags. Um, it's pretty much five days talking about um, the systems that are in place, um, whether that be capitalism or you know um, Northern Territory interventions or stuff that's coming from the top that we're subsumed in that actually makes things unsustainable. Um, and harms the environment, harms us, harms other people. Um, yeah, that's mm. the way we look at it. Yeah. Uh, Zane, do you have a question? Yeah, just we were discussing uh, just before we called you about this, what's all going on in the uh, Greens at the moment. And I understand that Lee Rhiannon's uh, going to be speaking at uh, SOS. Yeah. Um, so Lee um, applied for a couple of workshops. Uh, Lee is talking about... Um, Housing um, and uh, talking about maybe new modes of organising campaigns in the 21st century. Um, I think all the stuff that's happening in the Greens is um, interesting, um, for lack of a better word. Um, I would definitely be a 
Levy fan, though we are in, you know, this isn't a Greens push, we've specifically asked Levy to come and talk as Lee, um, and not particularly as a Green Senator. That's all right. Um, but all the stuff that's happening in the party room at the moment against the New South Wales Greens is, um, pretty gross. Um, but that's where, that's where Richard wants to take it to a centralist sort of space. So, hmm. not so happy about that. <laughs> Yeah, it should be an interesting discussion. It's uh, yeah, it's significant that you can invite someone like Lee Rhiannon to speak in their, um, I guess, in their background as a grassroots activist, not just as someone who's <coughs> a member of a party X, Y, or Z. Well, exactly. I, I don't know. I don't even know what I'd invite Richard to speak about. You know what I mean? Hmm. Like, <laughs> like Lee has a massive history of of yeah grassroots campaigning um you know that's that's how i know it is it's it's not on a screen it's not in some parliamentary promo it's leaving on the ground and talking to people and getting involved so Hmm. yeah yeah um i guess another um one of the things i wanted to ask is you know how have um, how big do you think SOS will be this year? Um, like, how how is that kind of aspect of outreach in terms of outreach to the other cities um, gone for, um, compared to other years? Um, I think it's gone pretty well this year. I think we flagged at training camp this year, which is sort of like the smaller event um, that the Australian Student Environment Network put on, um, that we did need to start reaching out to regional Spaces. I mean, Newcastle is sort of considered regional. Um, get out of the cities, sort of um, start doing some real groundwork around Australia and start supporting um, other groups that are emerging and not just have the, the sort of city um, urban bubble thing going on. Um, I think there will be about 600 people coming to this year's SOS. Um, we've really pushed it um, and promoted hard locally, um, which is great. So I think there may be about 350 people camping and another 250 people coming in and out over the whole five days. Yeah. So just a, that's um, all sounds good. Actually, one other question I have, and this might be um, this is probably a bit more controversial um, about the nature of SOS, but this is just going back um, to my memories of um, attending SOS in 2015, um, um, and though although every year. The next, um, the next year I went um, in Brisbane was a lot better in this regard. Um, but what is, what do you, um, what is this um, this year's SRS kind of relationship with um, the NGO spaces? Um, is would you say this conference is more openly critical of NGOs, or are NGOs have, um, or is there any section of, like, say, the agenda where NGOs have been given a um, are given a platform to express their kind of viewpoints and ideas? Um, I think this this year we've been particularly critical of NGOs. I don't. Um, I I'm looking at the program now, um, and I've. I, I don't think I think the fossil free um, movement, which is like sort of student-run um, campus campaigns around divestment, is about um, the only thing I can see. I think there might be someone from the Wilderness Society, and we've asked them not to um, really talk about and um, recruit for the Wilderness Society, um, but they're running a workshop on like personal narrative and how you can use that to. To reach people, I think that's about it. Like we, we don't really have. Um, I think C 
see Shepard wanted to come and sell some stuff, and we said no. Um, yeah, we're not really keen for big NGOs to come in and sort of um, take grassroots energy and um, shape it in a way that they see fit and then sort of um, be a little bit uh, shitty to their volunteers, as we've seen with 350 recently. I mean, I think parts of 350 are great, um, but we've seen some really um, not good stuff happening maybe in the last two months. So yeah. that's where that's at. Um, yeah. It's yeah. funny um, how you mentioned um, Sea Shepherd because <laughs> my memories of um, SOS in Adelaide um, was there, there was this actually the plan, there was a whole plenary section that was basically all NGOs. And I remember the one Sea Shepherd speaker just had this guy who was like very loud, just basically talk, went on a big talk about how love will save the environment. So I imagine this year's SOS won't have a panel of that calibre, <laughs> um, uh, because it no. does seem to be you've much more deliberately, play, mu- uh, much more critical and a bit more, you know, uh, have kind of limited their kind of, um, the space by which they can kind of, you know, express their ideas and platform. <laughs> yeah, we'd hope so. I mean, it is a little bit even different this year because we're in Newcastle, it's the biggest coal port in the, in the world, we've got the biggest coal chain going out into the valley, um, we have a whole um, panel session um, with local unions um, and people in that space talking about just transitions. It's very, very, very important for us here in Newcastle and up in the Hunter Valley um, to really um, bring workers on side and actually start understanding that space. And I think that's that's probably my biggest, biggest criticism of the whole, you know, young environmental movement at large is that it's just very disconnected from unions. And that's, you know... It's a two-way street. I mean, unions need to probably pick up their game and be as good as they were um, back in the green band days. But it's a far, it's we're far from that. But we need to rebuild those connections. Um, so I think that's that's our little bit of um, uniqueness that we're bringing to SOS this year is just trying to really um, bring some unions back okay. into the space. Um, yeah, very nice. I guess the last question I kind of have is: Do you know if there's any? Um, every SOS I've been to has always had this um, during the conference or even after the conference, um, but is there any plans for any actions um, um, that are going to be taking place during SOS or after SAS? Um, there might be, um, but I probably couldn't comment about them, uh, especially on radio. So if you want to get involved <laughs> and, and come, come to an action, you should definitely come to SOS and suss it out and see what's going on. Uh, yeah, and um, for listeners, it's not too late to go to SOS. Um, I mean, you can probably book a flight for Friday night, or it's a f- um, the first workshop start on Saturday, um, which is tomorrow. Um, but there will also be workshops going to from and sessions going from Saturday, Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. In fact, I'll be going to SOS from Sunday. Um, so yeah, I'll probably see you there. <laughs> awesome. Um, also, just want to let any listeners know that we have a um, a what you think ticket policy going so I mean especially if people want to travel from Melbourne it's expensive um, you can come and just enter zero dollars into that ticket subsidy form if you want and that's what you'll pay so we were just really prioritizing access for people at the moment so come along um, you'll be fed you'll be well bring you bring a tent and um, you'll be good yeah we can top sure. stuff oh it sounds like you're doing a uh, fantastic job organizing it so yeah hope it goes really well awesome uh, thanks guys Cheers. All right. All right. Uh, yeah.
Tim Buchanan there from Newcastle Uni Students Association talking about the upcoming Students of Sustainability Conference happening this weekend there. And, uh, yeah, several hundred university students and other sort of fellow travellers and activists from around the country and around the region are going to be descending upon Newcastle for that. So, yeah, it's good stuff. All right. You're listening to Go, 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 Abra, Abra, Green Left, Oh, weekly. And I was about to play an announcement, and now I will. This is Irene Bolger, former Secretary of the Nurses Federation in Victoria. Throughout the nurses' dispute in 1986 and the waterfront dispute in 1998, 3CR was always there broadcasting the voices of workers in struggle. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio and we're broadcasting live from the Bay to Chicken Strike here in Melbourne. We've just seen all of the thousands of nurses walk through to their meeting and people from different unions showing their solidarity. 3CR, radio for the workers, by the workers, since 1976. Pogues, dirty old town for you there. It's going out to everyone who's heading up to Newey for SOS this weekend. Alright, what's happening, Jacob? Okay, so I have some news from Green Left Weekly to share. Um, this is one of the, the articles um, written by Zebedee Parks. Um, it's um, on the back cover of um, the latest Green Left Weekly. Um, but it's all about the whole question of refugees and, you know, climate change. Um, you know, he starts off by, you know, stating, you know, um, that, you know, there are countless reports from, you know, NGOs, you know, scientists and governments on this whole on climate refugees, you know, as, you know, refugee rights, and then comments further that, you know, as refugee rights groups focus on ending the barbaric practices of governments locking out people fleeing war and persecution and climate campaigners fight the latest coal mine, the lack of collaboration between the two is startling on this whole question of, you know, climate refugees. Um, a September st- um, 2015 statement by um, 350.org in the lead-up to the Paris Climate Talks titled Why as We Climate Activists Stand with Refugees as Exception, um, you know, which looks at the role climate change played in triggering the Syrian conflict and how the governments that are the worst climate um, offenders are also at the at the forefront um, of persecuting refugees. It speaks of the need to unite civil and environmental struggles against the powers that be. However, you know, um, Zeb writes here, it is only a statement. The movement needs to raise the plight of people whose island nations are becoming submerged under rising sea levels. A look at the climate crisis and refugee crisis show the two are now more interconnected than ever before. Um, a report by the Internal Displacement um, Monitoring Centre found 24.2 million people last year were in- internally displaced by natural disasters such as floods and storms, natural disasters that are either caused or worsened by climate change. These, this included two typhoons hitting the Philippines that displaced about 5 million people and floods in Bihar, India, that displaced more than 1.6 million people. Um, the, you know, there are also many island nations in the Pacific Ocean um, that are rapidly becoming in- unhabitable due to rising sea levels. Um, the the Carter Island population has begun resettling on nearby Bougainville. The scientists have already concluded that five islands in the Pacific Ocean have become submerged. 
Um, the Environmental Justice Foundation says that, you know, over the next 40 years, 150 million people will be forced to leave their homes due to droughts, extreme weather events and rising sea levels. Um, a report by the Global Humanitarian Forum, Geneva, showed that um, 99% of the deaths from climate change disasters are in the world's least developed countries, which account for 1% of global emissions. Um, but of course, you know, he comments here for the, you know, that people fleeing climate change have done the least to cause it. Countries such as Australia and the US, which created their wealth on the back of the exploitation of the third world, are locking, you know, people out of, in their interests of protecting their way of life. Just as, um, Western countries turn back people fleeing their wars, they do the same to people suffering the worst effects of climate change. Australia, the world higher, world's highest per capita emitter of carbon emissions has refused all requests by the people of the current islands for aid and relocation to Australia. The, cla- um, the go- Australian government claims um, it is because people fleeing, fleeing climate change are not um, classed as refugees by the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. While that is technically true, this is hardly the reason um, the UN recognises, you know, climate refugees as a major world crisis. You know, as UN Secretary um, Antonio Gertes said, climate change is now found to be the key factor accelerating all other drivers of forced deplacement. These persons are not truly migrants in the sense that they did not move voluntarily, as forcibly displaced is not covered by the refugee protection regime, they find themselves in a legal void. Their organisations doing worthwhile advocacy work campaign for the UNHCR to include a category for climate refugees, but they often face opposition from the West, including Australia. Um, of course, um, one of the, you know some interesting technological solutions to the crisis have been put forward, such as um, Sea Seedings Institute proposal to construct flying floating cities where islands are becoming submerged. The first floating Island pilot project is due to begin development in French Polynesia next year. However, what is needed for a crisis that encompasses millions of people across the globe is a political alternative to the actions of rich countries. We have seen the US police shooting people trying to flee the poor suburbs in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina and immigration agents um, deporting people to countries um, the US continues to bomb. The Australian government locks up people in offshore detention centres who are fleeing wars it is involved in and denies refugee status to people fleeing environmental disasters for which Australia has profited. There are countless examples of across Europe of wars inhospitable camps and armed forces being deployed to keep people out of the countries that have destroyed their homes an alternative needed and of course um, Zeb here then concludes the article by you know arguing that you know the climate and refugee crises are fundamental crises of capitalism rich co- uh, countries and corporations have been colonising and environmentally vandalising poorer countries in the pursuit of profits leaving them vulnerable to the effects of climate change Rich countries have a responsibility to help resettle people displaced by climate change. This should be part of paying an ecological debt to the third world countries they have pillaged. To achieve climate justice for the millions who have been affected, uh, who will be affected by climate change, complete system change is needed. Dealing with climate change and the refugee crisis requires an internationalist approach where borders are open for people fleeing the effects of climate change. Finding the ways of uniting the two struggles is crucial to achieving this. Together, other world is not only possible, it is necessary for our collective survival. Here, here. 
Yeah, so I think it's, yeah, it's um, this whole question of, you know, climate refugees. It's like we're almost in, like, <clears throat> this sort of crisis of climate change, you know, is almost revealing the worst parts of, you know, human nature when, you know, when, you know, rich countries are, like, building up barriers and wars, you know, to prevent refugees, you know, from coming in. You know, but, you know, what is really needed is, you know, we need, you know, collective solidarity. Um, but of course, when, when you have, um, governments in control of, you know, capitalist governments in control where their only interest is, you know, the pursuit of profits and of course the, these things happen. And I think what's more fascinating is, you know, the um, of what's happening in, say, Greece, where, you know, Greece has been affected by one of the worst economic crises. And yet, you know, there's... But they've got their solidarity kitchens and yeah. refugee welcome. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. some of the most amazing sort of signs of show, um, expressions of solidarity and of, of material aid that they've given to refugees is amazing. Meanwhile, we have Australia. Mm. Well, what do I need to say about Australia? Like, yeah, I mean, the top country for taking refugees is Jordan. Yeah. And it's one of the driest countries on the planet. And But they're, they've got a an openness to refugees because they recognise these are people with skills and mm. in many cases they're people with money. They've, they've got their stuff. They're just looking for a place to to retreat to and to set up. Like refugees shouldn't be looked at as a burden. It's it's uh, yeah, it's really backwards. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a real. I was talking to a Greens member last night about this. Um, you know, all this stuff that's going on in the Greens at the moment. They're pretty disaffected by all that and and also the you know it's pretty depressing thinking about what if we don't stop runaway climate change and what if the world really is in a terrible place a hundred years from now and i think that radical politics and this particularly this question of climate refugees and what do we do as as food bowls start drying up and there's massive water shortages i think that <laughs> radical Politics is, and, and activism still is still going to be really important going forward, um, even if things do kind of deteriorate. It's not that we just all give up and go home. All right. Um, thank you very much, Jacob. Jacob's uh, heading off to work. He's going to go sell his labour. Uh, yeah. Cheers, comrade. All right, you are listening to Green Left Radio. And it is 7.49. This is 3CR. Get amongst it. You are listening to Green Left Radio on the Friday morning breakfast show, broadcast live on 3CR Radio, 855am digital and streaming live on 3cr.org.au. Green Left Radio is brought to you by the Green Left Weekly newspaper, providing a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment before profit. Subscribe to Green Left Weekly by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1-800-634-206. For new subscribers, it's only $10 for the first seven issues. Um, so, you are listening to Green Lamp Radio, you're on 3CR, you're with Zane, and I'm flying solo at the moment, because Jacob's had to head off, go and sell his labour. You know how it is, being part of the working class. Uh, okay, now, I just wanted to talk a little bit about an article that I've written for the upcoming Green Lamp Weekly, 
and it's about the rise in electricity prices that is coming. So if you cast your mind back to about 2013, Tony Abbott famously proclaimed, we'll scrap the carbon tax so your family will be $550 a year better off. Uh, fast forward to the present, and there's a choice.com.au article dated June 22, energy providers will increase electricity and gas prices by up to $400 a year when changes come into effect from next week on the 1st of July. So I've written this article and it's pretty much looking at the fact that, well, power prices are doing the opposite of what liberals have said they'd do. They said once we get rid of the carbon tax, prices will come tumbling down. Uh, actually, if you look at it, uh, it's all about privatisation of the electricity system and in many ways uh, that that has led these profit-focused companies to push the price up and up. Uh, the Sharon Beda from the University of Wollongong has written a lot about power privatisation in Australia and she wrote that prior to privatisation and deregulation, electricity rates in eastern Australia tended to fall over time and were amongst the cheapest in the world. Now that situation has reversed, rates are soaring and are now amongst the most expensive in the world. The Federal Liberal Party blames this on the carbon tax even before the carbon tax came into being and despite evidence to the contrary since. Uh, so my article goes on to look at probably the four the four main kind of uh, aspects of, of price rises. So one of the first ones, and this is done by marketised state-owned electricity companies that were being readied for privatisation. So it wasn't just private energy companies. It was publicly owned companies that were pretty much being run as though they were corporations in preparation for being privatised. They've gone around and they've basically rorted the regulatory framework and engaged in what became known as network gold plating, so the rules said, if you're a power company and you spend money upgrading your infrastructure, then you're allowed to charge people uh, more for their electricity, not only to recoup the cost of your investment, but you're allowed to charge another 10% on top of that. So this created a perverse incentive for the power companies to go out and spend something like $45 billion, massive amount of money over the last decade. They weren't building new network upgrades into rural areas that would allow new wind and solar farms to be connected. They're massively upgrading the main corridors from their coal and gas-fired power stations to the big load centres in the cities. Quite unnecessary, quite excessive, and the primary reason they did it was because it... It provided an excuse to up the power uh, price. You can't... that There's nominal kind of regulatory tribunals, and they said you can't just charge people twice for electricity next year for no reason. But if you're doing this network upgrade, then, OK, we'll let you charge people more. So that's kind of a big factor in how we got to where we are now. There's another thing called standing offers. So... You often see these ads on social media or in the newspaper or on the radio saying, join Origin Energy today or join Company X today 
and you'll save blah, 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 20% on your bills, and it'll be really cheap for the next six months or whatever. Uh, once your introductory cheap offer runs out, the price goes back up to what's called a standing offer, the kind of normal, you know, uh, average, not a special introductory offer price. Uh, now, those prices are the expensive ones, and most, the majority of people with the electricity account have had that for more than five years. So the majority of people are on these standing offers. It's annoying, and really, a lot of people wouldn't, see the need they'll go look I've, I've chosen an energy company i pay my bills people aren't in the habit of constantly jumping from company to company to company to company but to get the lowest prices the system is set up so that you actually need to be constantly changing your energy provider which is really annoying and doesn't make sense uh there's some good analysis, a lot of the analysis from the Grattan Institute and a lot of what Michelle Grattan has to say I don't agree with, but there was some uh, analysis from the Grattan Institute looking at power prices in Australia and it said that the Australian electricity companies capture one of the highest rates of profit on their gross turnover in the world. So if you look at the aggregate profit margin, for instance, for the retail sector in Australia, so all different types of retail, um, from CDs to clothes to groceries, the average um, margin of profit that retailers get on what they're selling is 4% relative to their gross uh, income or their gross sales. Uh, the electricity, uh, sorry, 5% for retail. In the UK, electricity retailers, they make about 4%. Uh, in Australia, 13 to 15% profit margin on the gross revenue of the electricity companies. So they're charging really big margins. They're making, uh, fat profits. Uh, Origin had an underlying profit of $354 million in 2016. AGL posted a half-year net profit of uh, $325 million at the end of uh, 2016. Uh, an August 2016 Sydney Morning Herald article says AGL is making over $100 profit per annum per household on average, and that's up from $86 per household the previous year. Uh, Hong Kong-owned Energy Australia made $310 million profit for 2015-16, and these big three energy companies, uh, they're part of that list of 670 companies that get up in particular have done a lot of work saying these big companies ain't paying any tax. So these companies making a bunch of money and they're doing all the traditional sort of accounting tricks so they don't have to pay any tax. Uh, so what is to be done? And my article which I've unfortunately saddled the poor editors of Greenleaf Weekly with a bit of a mission because my article's a bit over word count, but I've then gone on to say, okay, prices are expensive, here's why. These companies are quite profitable. There's no need for them to ramp up the cost so much. Um, and then I'll, I'll go on to say, well, what's the alternative? And in my humble opinion, it is a publicly owned energy system and it is a publicly owned 100% renewable energy system, and 
of course, Beyond Zero Emissions. They host their show at uh, 8.30 on Friday mornings. I think they've got another show on Monday Arvos as well. Uh, they, of course, put out their excellent stationary energy plan back in 2010. Uh, that was very well-researched, independently analysed by uh, Sinclair, Knight Mertz, and some other, um, I guess, electricity industry professionals to kind of verify, okay, these numbers do stack up. They put a price tag of $370 billion on the task of taking Australia to 100% renewable energy. And so how would we do that if it was under public ownership? Well, for a start, you could stop these loopholes that corporations use to minimise their taxable income. Uh, that's Oxfam has conservatively estimated that there's about $6 billion more per annum that, that the federal government would be gathering in tax receipts if corporations paid their full company tax rate. That company tax rate isn't that high. It's 30%. Uh, back in 1987, not that long ago, uh, the corporate, the company tax rate in Australia was actually 49%. So if we put, and then the Hawke leading, the Hawke Keating government made progressive cuts to the company tax rate, and then once Howard got in, cut the tax rate to where it is now, 30%. Turnbull wants to cut it further to 28.5% or whatever, uh, or 25% even. It's, it's, it's terrible. Like, that money is needed for schools and hospitals and I would argue also for publicly owned renewable energy. Uh, so if we were to up the company tax rate in Australia back to the 49% it was at in 1987, that would bring in an extra $35 billion per annum to the federal government. So, those two measures alone, stopping companies from using these loopholes to unfairly minimise their taxable income and upping the tax rate on companies back to 49%, those two measures alone, that would be enough money to pay for a publicly owned 100% renewable energy system in Australia in 10 years. Uh, and then if you were to increase the tax rate on the highest income bracket, which is people getting over $180,000 per annum from its current rate of 49.5%, if you were to put that back up to the 75% rate that it was at in the early 1950s, that would deliver upwards of $30 billion per annum more to federal coffers. So, yeah, I sort of finished my article by saying... The rise of Jeremy Corbyn in the UK and the popularity of Jeremy Corbyn, it puts these things back on the table. They're pretty basic measures. If you don't have enough money to pay for necessary things like schools, hospitals, public transport, public housing, publicly owned renewable energy, there's a very obvious solution, and that's putting the company tax rate, the tax on the wealthiest individuals, back up to some of the levels that it has historically been at. Uh, it's not even like revolutionary. It's not, it's not full communism to just put the tax rate back to what it was 30 or 50 years ago. These, you know, Australia was not a communist country in the 1950s or in the 1980s. These are still social democratic measures, but for the last like 35 years, it's been off the table 
because neoliberal ideology says you can only ever cut taxes. You can never put them back up. So that's the real significance of uh, Jeremy Corbyn's rise, I think. And, uh, yeah, we should really be talking a bit more, I think, about direct public investment in wind farms and solar farms because that's where all of our existing coal-fired and gas-fired power stations came from. I reckon it's a pretty logical way to think about where a whole bunch of new wind and solar farms can come from. All right, that's my sort of um, contribution for the morning, so keep an eye out for that um, article in the coming Green Left. All right, a brief announcement, and we're going to go to the activist calendar for the week. Green Left Radio. I'm Tash Sultana, and you are listening to 3CR. Please subscribe. Do yourselves a massive favour. Thank you very much. Are you interested in philanthropy? Do you want to be a major philanthropist? Well, I can help you. Donate to the 3CR Radio Fund. Get a legal, legitimate tax deduction by listening to your favourite radical program on Community Radio 3CR. Ring now, 94198377. Tell your friends, tell your rich and powerful friends, you too are a rich and powerful philanthropist. Ring now, 94198377. Don't use the telephone. A bit passe. Well, go to 3cr.org.au. This is your chance to keep 3CR on air and get a legal, legitimate tax deduction. Donate now. Woo! And Green Left Radio, we actually have not been amongst the illustrious company of some of our peers here at 3CR who have either made their radios on target or have exceeded that target. Uh, we still need to raise about another 800 bucks. So if you can chuck in and contribute to this excellent radical radio station, please pick up the phone 0394198377 or go to 3cr.org.au forward slash and donate and put a little note that says I'm donating to Green Left Radio and you'll help us hit our target because, yeah, everyone's got to pitch in and... Uh, keep this thing ticking over. Okay, it is time for the activist calendar. It is nine minutes past eight. You're listening to 3CR. This is Green Left Radio. Uh, now, this uh, weekend, starting this evening and happening tomorrow, there's the conference on the Rojava Revolution in northern Syria, an experiment in radical democracy, feminism, and ecology. For six years, Syria has been engulfed in a terrible war, The original democratic revolt against the Assad regime has given way to a brutal multi-sided conflict, but in the midst of this carnage, under threat from all sides, the freedom struggle in Rojava is a shining beacon of hope. Uh, So we're going to get John Tully on the line in a moment to talk more about that conference. Uh, But yeah, it's to inform, discuss and build solidarity. It's happening at the Vic Uni City Campus at 300 Flinders Street in the city. So check out Australians for Kurdistan uh, on Facebook. Just look it up. 
Uh, of course, we spoke to Tim Buchanan before. Students of Sustainability is happening up in Newcastle. And as Tim said, if you can scrape together enough money to ride, share, or get a train or a bus or a plane or whatever and get your behind to Newcastle, there will be communal food there, there will be stuff there, and it's kind of pay-as-you-can uh, 3CR listeners would know that students these days live a fairly Spartan existence. So, yeah, if you're a student, if you're an activist, if you're someone who wants to contribute to that discussion and, you know, get amongst it, head up to Nui. Um, and, yeah, you can check out the studentsofsustainability.org website. Uh, Google it. Yeah, check it out. All right. Saturday, July 1. Discussion, resistance to the occupation in the West Bank. Come join us for a vegetarian potluck lunch to listen to two members of AJDS, Australian Jewish Democratic Society, Rachel Liebhaber and Geordie Silverstein, as they share stories from their recent trip working in the West Bank as part of a delegation of 130 Jews from around the world who came together with the Centre for Jewish Nonviolence. They'll describe their time working in Hebron with Youth Against Settlements and being part of Palestinian-led coalition of groups which established Sumud Freedom Camp at Sarura, a Palestinian village in South Hebron. So that's happening at Unit 5, 311 Alma Road, Caulfield North. And, yeah, it's organised by the Australian Jewish Democratic Society. Also coming up... The NADOC Festival in March, pre-March Festival, 11 a.m., March 11.45. That's at VARS, the Victorian Aboriginal Health Service, Nicholson Street, Fitzroy. Uh, Saturday, July 22 to Monday, July 24, Power Shift 2017. Uh, that conference of the Australian Youth Climate Coalition, that's happening at La Trobe Uni. Sunday, July 23, there's a film screening, Battleship Potomkin. Uh, that's that's at 3pm at Cinema Nova, Logan Street, Carlton. And there's a public meeting on Monday, July 24, uh, talking about the Labor leadership's support for deterrence and their silence on Bring Them Here, which helps the coalition get away their offshore camps. Uh, so that's got Jed Carney from the ACTU, Michelle O'Neill from the uh, Textile Clothing Footwear Union, Aaron uh, Milvagnum, a Tamil refugee and FSU organiser, Lucy Honan from RAC. So that's at 6.30 at Trades Hall, Victoria Street, Carlton South. And, yeah, so that's some stuff that's coming up. Consider yourself learned of the activist calendar. All right, and play another quick announcement, and then we'll get John Tully on the line. Yarra Council presents the 5th Annual Leaps and Bounds Music Festival 2017. Opening on Thursday the 13th of July with Augie March at the Corner Hotel. Hosted in more than 40 music venues within the city of Yarra, the 10-day festival runs until Sunday the 23rd of July and features Ed Cooper, Dave Graney, the Letter String Quartet, Brooke Russell and Hungry Ghosts Reformation Show. For participating venues and tickets go to Leaps and Bounds Music Festival dot com. Three CR supporter. Alrighty. Uh, yes, welcome back. 
It's uh, uh, yes, Friday breakfast, and we've got John Tully on the line from Australians for Kurdistan. Welcome, John. Um, thank you. Um, thanks, and welcome to your listeners, I hope, to our conference. Yes. Uh, so can you tell us a bit about the conference that's happening this weekend at uh, the Vic Uni City Campus, the Rojava Revolution in northern Syria? Uh, yes, the conference is actually sponsored by... Um, my college, that's the College of Arts and Education at um, Victoria University, and it's been organised by um, Australians for Kurdistan and the Kurdish Democratic Community Centre. Um, the, the details are that it starts at 6.30 for 7 this evening at the Flinders Street campus of Victoria University. That's at um, 300 Flinders Street. It's... Um, almost opposite um, Flinders Street Station. Yeah, cool. Uh, and so what's uh, on the agenda? What's, well, what's the session tonight looking at? Um, the session tonight is uh, an introductory session. It's a public meeting, actually. Um, um, and I'd urge people to come to the public meeting, even if they um, haven't been thinking about, if they know about if they haven't been thinking about coming to the rest of the conference on the Saturday, um, because uh, maybe they will then consider to come for the rest of the conference. So the public meeting will be um, addressed by a number of speakers um, about the general situation in Rojava and um, why we should show support for it. Um, the speakers will include um, uh, Andrea Maximovich, who's the international officer of the ACTU, that's the Australian Council of Trade Unions, um, Rob Starry, who's a civil Liberty's lawyer and he, a strong advocate for the uh, Kurdish people, um, a speaker from the um, uh, Kurdish Democratic Community Centre, whose name is Chektar, um, and a number of other speakers who, who, uh, whose names escape me at the moment. I'm having a senior moment, I'm afraid. Oh, you get that at uh, 20 past eight in the morning. Uh, you get it at my age, too. <laughs> Yeah, no, no, fair enough. Um, so, what's, I don't know, what's the, what's the key kind of, what are what are some of the most significant um, political things that have been happening in in Rojava? Well, as you know, um, the uh, the SDF, that's the Syrian Democratic Forces, and the core of that is the uh, the People's Protection Units and the Women's Protection Units. Um, it's more or less, we could say, it's the army of um, Rojava and the Northern Syrian Federation. They actually have Raqqa surrounded, the capital of the um, so-called Caliphate of Islamic State. Um, mm. And it looks like um, ISIS, at least in a uh, state or semi-state-like condition, is going to collapse. So that, that's one thing that's happening. But, of course, they're, they're important political changes which have been happening in Rojava strike northern Syria um, over the past uh, few years. Um, very important changes. And they stand out in the Middle East, of course, because they are so progressive. I mean, for much of the Middle East, you have dictatorship. There's a horrendous war which has been going on, a horrendous sectarian civil war. You have um, um, religious sectarianism, ethnic hatreds and so forth bubbling away not to mention sort of foreign intervention, but in, in, in Rojava, northern Syria, the, um, the federation there, um, you have um, 
policies of sort of multiculturalism and in particular respect for women's rights, um, for human rights, democracy and that democracy is very important because it's um, sort of grassroots commune style democracy which is encouraged right across the region. So th these are some of the most exciting developments I think that have happened in, in the Middle East in a long, long time and it's something um, I think we really have to get behind because it, they are, even though they're winning militarily against ISIS, um, the forces of Rojava and the Northern Syrian Federation are surrounded by some pretty nasty enemies. Mm. Now, there was a pretty vexed meeting in Sydney last night looking at Syria, uh, and this debate has kind of... It's, it's a very... Uh, it's a very fractious one on the left because people either very seem to very strongly dig in their heels and say I'm pro the Syrian rebels or other people dig in their heels and say I'm pro the Assad regime and then there's this revolution happening in Rojava and sometimes this um, it's, it's difficult to separate out what's happening in Rojava from this very controversial and fractious broader uh, conflict that's that's happening in Syria. Uh, now, do you? Some some people have accused Rojava of being like agents of U.S. imperialism or something. Do you, do you think that's a fair characterization? Uh, no, I, I, not at all. Um, it, it is true that the um, United States has been helping the Syrian Democratic Forces, but um, my view on that is that. You know, if your back's against the wall, against an absolutely brutal and, and degenerate enemy, um, you have every right to, you know, get um, assistance from wherever you can get it. Um, that, that's one point. Um, mm. And, and I, I, w without that sort of assistance, the, 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 the progressive forces in Rojava would be against a much more heavily armed enemy. But the other thing is, I, I think that the um, Syrian Democratic Forces have been quite right to keep out of what is a, a very, very nasty sectarian war in the rest of Syria between the Assad regime and the so-called Free Syrian Army. Um, I think there's no percentage in getting involved in that at all. It's an absolutely catastrophic war for the country, which has created millions of um, refugees and internally displaced persons, which has led to human rights abuses, massive civilian loss of life. And both sides in that civil war, I think, stand, um, you know, accused of, of um, some pretty brutal crimes. The Assad regime is a, is a disgraceful, degenerate dictatorship, a corrupt dictatorship, which will stop at nothing. And on the other side, you have a, what basically the, the, the so-called free, free Syrian army contains some secular forces still, but the secular democratic forces, by and large, were marginalised by Islamists of one stripe or another, including the former... Um, affiliate of al-Qaeda in, in, in Syria. They marginalized the progressive forces as far back as 2012. And the, um, the Kurds in Rojava, I think, were quite right to stay out of that and take the, the, the sort of um, stance of, if you like, armed neutrality, which is, was um, we're, we're not going to get involved in, the, in this conflict, um, 
but if you come along and, and um, attack us, then you're going to come off second best, which has happened a few times. Um, mm. though, I mean, the, the, they're also surrounded to the north, or, or to the north they have Turkey, mm. which is playing a particularly despicable role. Um, as listeners may know, um, Turkey was one of the forces which was actually uh, creating, fostering, however you want to call it, Islamic State itself, and it's absolutely hostile to the Kurds in Turkey and to the Kurds in Syria. So, you know, as I say, I think that the Syrian Democratic Forces, uh, strike the YPG, the YPJ, have the right to seek assistance from wherever they can find it. Um, mm. It's all right for people sitting on the banks of the Yarra in, in relative comfort to criticise people overseas, but I'd urge them to have a long, hard think about about precisely what's happening in Syria. Hmm. Uh, one facet of that, and we were discussing this a bit earlier, is the, the massive flow of refugees out of Syria that's been precipitated by this conflict. What's, how many of those refugees are ending up in Rojava, and what's the, what's the response there? What's the situation for, for those people who've, who've ended up in that part of the world? Um, I, I haven't got any figures on that, but, but what I do know is because of the reconstruction which has been happening in, in Rojava, and that's, that's something which is pretty astounding, that you're actually having reconstruction uh, at a time of um, horrendous war in the rest of the country, um, that people have been trickling back. Uh, Kobani, as listeners may know, withstood a siege of IS and was completely flattened. It, it looked like something off out of the moon, but it's being rebuilt and people are coming back to, to, to the town, to their villages, and right across the region. So, as I say, I don't have any figures, but I do know that people have gone there, not just Kurds, but also Assyrians in particular, to escape the, the civil war in the rest of the countryside and live in some sort of peace and security. Hmm. And it's not just about the Kurds, is it? Because some of the sort of uh, liberated territory is populated by, uh, I guess the Kurds are a minority in, the, in some of these pockets of Rojava. Yes, that's true. Um, it's, a, it's a religious and ethnic patchwork. The Middle East as a whole is, and Rojava's no different. I mean, across the northern strip of Syria itself, the Kurds are in a... A general majority, I think they make up something between 7 and 10 percent of the total population of Syria. But in this sort of cultural mosaic, you have um, Turkmen, that is ethnic Turks, you have Assyrians, Syriac Christians, um, Arabs, etc., etc. And the Kurdish, the PYD, the, the People's Democratic Party, or the Kurdish Democratic Party in Rojava, was very, very um, aware of this, and they were very aware of the, of the danger of setting up a purely Kurdish state or statelet, some sort of political formation or organism that excluded the other um, ethnic and religious groups. So for that reason, um, they've been very careful um, to develop policies that, um, to, to include the other ethnic groups, policies that we'd call multiculturalism. So they've also encouraged um, the same sorts of grassroots democracy um, for the other ethnic groups. And 
last year, I think it was the 17th of March, there was the declaration of the, um, the uh, Federation of Northern Syria, um, which is a multicultural entity, not recognised by any of the other players, I should say. But I think it actually stands out as a, a model for the rest of not only um, Syria, but also Iraq, other parts of the Middle East. Um, you can't really have any genuine peace with justice, any lasting peace, unless you have that sort of federated model which guarantees the civil, um, political, cultural, etc. rights of all of the peoples of the region. Hmm. And do you... Look, it strikes me that, that that is a very powerful example for other progressive forces in the region. Is, that, is there evidence of other groups paying attention what sort of uh, i guess solidarity or communication is there between left groups in in other parts of of the middle east and the i guess the um the the caucasus or the, the sort of s- southern part of uh, where europe meets the middle east well i can't comment directly on that but um of course across the border in turkey um the same the kurdish regions have the same sort of approach uh, of course, they're under massive attack by the Erdogan regime, dictatorship, I think we'd have to call it at the present time. Mm. I think it's a powerful model, um, but it remains to be seen um, whether or not the, the the sort of news of that gets out across the region because there is immense hostility by states. The Assad regime, of course, came out straight away and refused to recognise any sort of uh, federative structure federal structure. Um, the uh, FSA and the other elements of the Syrian opposition um, refused to recognise it. What they want is, uh, a uni- they all want a unitary state. Uh, and of course the name of the, the state, Assad state, says it all. It's the Syrian Arab Republic. It doesn't take into account the, the existence of um, millions of other ethnic groups. Mm. Yeah, and historically the Kurds in Syria, uh, it's similar to the to the uh, Palestinians, uh, I guess, um, getting a getting a raw deal and getting pushed out, or particularly like the the Tamils in Sri Lanka, uh, I guess, going a few back a few decades, the, the the Kurdish population within Syria have always struggled to have a voice and to to get the same level of public resources and stuff uh, under that, that Syrian Arab Republic. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. And it's, I mean, the, the Kurds are the, they're sometimes called, probably correctly, I think, the world's largest stateless nation. And it's really not possible to get uh, an absolutely precise figure, but they're probably 35 million Kurds mm. um, living in the, in the region. They're spread across uh, a number of countries, most... Um, most importantly, Turkey, um, Syria, Iraq, Iran, mm. and also pockets in the Caucasus and mm. and other other parts of of the, the Middle East. Real. Right. Um, um, they, they've sorry. always been persecuted. Um, yeah. They. Sorry, very, very sorry to, to cut you off, John. I've, uh, I've done it again. We're beyond zero, I really have to get started in here, so we, we'll have to wrap it up. But yeah, check it out. Um, Vic Uni Campus at 300 Flinders Street in the city. Uh, happening tonight. Thanks again, John. Thank you. You're most welcome. All right.
This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio. Brought to you by the Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first. If you would like to subscribe to the newspaper and get it delivered to your door, you can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1800 634 206. For new subscribers, it is only $10 for the first six issues. Repeats of the show and interviews are podcasts on our homepage on the 3CR website. Thank you for listening. You are tuned into 3CR Community Radio, 855 Digital on the AM dial and streaming live on 3cr.org.au.